into teaching today. We will do book discussion, announcement stuff later. We'll do teaching, we'll take a break, we'll do announcement stuff, then we'll do more teaching, theoretically. Uh, but we're just shifting the order today. So we're not going to do Leviticus today, so we did it last week. So um, we're, I'm recording these, um, which you guys have been good to remind me about, and putting them on the podcast. If you guys haven't um, seen that or subscribe, subscribe to it or follow it or whatever they call it now these days. Yeah, no, there's a couple of them rated. It's like, that's so funny. Um, but get, get the, it's 2.15. I sent, I sent you guys a link, but you can just look up 2.15. I think it should find it. Or 215 training or I don't know. It's on Spotify too. Yeah. It's, pretty, it's a pretty big deal, sure. Uh, no, I, get, I think we have like 20 listens overall ever. Uh, but that's not the goal. I do that because if you guys miss class, I really want you to go back and listen at some point. Um, not because the numbers don't matter at all, but if you miss class, I want you to go back and listen because just like with the Bible books, I really believe it's good for you. So get the handout, listen to the teaching, it'll be helpful. You're welcome to listen back through it if you want to. I don't know why you particularly want to, but if you just want to refamiliarize, you certainly can. If you want to, um, you know, share. I, I talked to uh, Jackson and Jared specifically and said, like, if you want to share with Lindsay and Abby, just because they're, like, with you in life but not hearing this stuff, you can. So if there's people like that who are like, man, I'd love to know what you're learning, you certainly could share it with them, but I don't, I don't care. It's mostly for if you miss class. I really want you to go back and listen. Does that make sense? Okay. Do you, I, I feel I sense confusion on faces. What questions do we have? I just noticed that Jonathan's not here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So McKinley's sick, as we've covered. Jonathan, uh, there's a volunteer from the Prospect Campus uh, who passed away last week, and there's a funeral today. Mm-hmm. So he's going to be part of that funeral. And he called and asked if he could be there. He's like, absolutely, that's a big deal. So I think the Prospect Campus is probably pretty all in on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll miss Jonathan today. And do you had your hand up a second ago? You all right? Okay. Okay. All righty. Um, so today we're going to do Numbers and Deuteronomy. And we'll, we'll kind of keep cruising along this stuff and catch up at some point. We're still a day or so behind, but um, I kind of anticipate that that will happen each year and we make it up at some point. So I'm not too worried about it. Uh, so Numbers, you can go ahead and op- open up there. And we'll start working through. I think Numbers is a very, very, very underrated Bible book, I think. Um, so typically, tell me, you know, when people talk about Numbers, when you think about Numbers, what do you think of? Like, people usually say, oh, Numbers, that's just... Census. Yeah, census, number. yeah, I know, it's <laughs> miserable. Um, which is true, that's in there, and it's, it's hard because it starts early. So if you, if you start going through Numbers... It's like, oh, the first chapter is a lot of that. And then the second chapter is like where they all lived in the arrangements. But then after that, in chapter three, it gets into other stuff. And then there's a couple other portions through the book where there's like, and then they took a census or then they arranged. But a lot of the book is narrative. Um, a lot of it. But I think people are usually like, oh, numbers, that's just the book of like where they do the census and that's it. It's like, that's only like three, four, five chapters, maybe six throughout of 36 where that's the case. The, the rest of it is retelling of um, Exodus stuff or narratives about the wilderness wandering. I think Numbers is very underrated. There's lots of crazy stories, lots of interesting stories, so take, it, take Numbers seriously. Don't write it off. It's good. Um, the author is who? Moses. Moses. 
uh, and then when it happened, the wilderness wandering are your blanks, the wilderness wandering. Um, so this numbers covers, um, it starts while they're still kind of at Sinai finishing that stuff up, but then it carries on through um, when they're just about to enter the promised land and they're just kind of on the verge of doing that. So it covers the whole wandering period. So it doesn't give us tons of stories during 40 years. For 40 years worth, there's not a lot that we know. Um, but I think it gives us a couple like representative stories of like, here's the kinds of things that happen. But there's a whole lot of years where they're probably just sitting on the desert eating manna and who knows what and just getting tired of it. So they fight some battles and things like that. But um, numbers covers that. So that's helpful for me when I'm again, if I'm just familiarizing myself with the Bible story and I think oh, numbers is the book with the census. But then like they've got these 40 years. Where did those happen? That happens in numbers. So again, it's underrated for another just familiarizing yourself with the story um, that in Genesis. Well, let's do this instead of me telling you. Talk, talk me through Genesis. Like narrative from beginning of end, what does Genesis get us? Just kind of call out some, some of the narrative flow of the book. Creation. Okay, good start. Noah. Yes, creation, Noah. Oh. Abraham. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Where's, where does the call of Abram happen? 12. Genesis 12. Good, good, good. The flood is, in, it, where is the flood? Nine. Six. Six. And nine, yeah, the, yeah, it all kind of starts in there. Six to nine or so is no story. Okay, so then Abram after that. Then who is Abram's, Abraham's son? Who's Isaac's son? Jacob. Who are Jacob's sons? The twelve tribes of Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can anybody name the twelve? I'm not sure if I could. I might be able to. Judah. Judah's one of them. Reuben. Dan. Benjamin. Joseph. Dad. Naphtali. Naphtali. Yeah. Asher. Dan. Asher. Reuben. Oh, good one. We've got at least most of them. That's Tim. That's Tim. No, we already got those. Levi. Got those. Okay. <laughs> no, keep going. Keep going. Did you say Joseph? With ten. Yep. Okay. And Joseph splits into two. Do you remember the two that Joseph oh, splits into? And, uh, and Ephraim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good job, y'all. All right. It's okay if you don't know them all. Like I said, it's that's a hard one to pull off. I just was curious. So jo- Jacob's twelve sons become the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph splits into Ephraim and Manasseh. So there's kind of thirteen tribes ish, um, but Ephraim and Manasseh come together a little bit with Joseph. Um, and Joseph's story is long, right? Like probably, I think it's the longest character focus uh, in Genesis. Abraham is probably close. Abraham and, and Joseph are the close ones. But Joseph takes us kind of up until the end of Genesis. What's the end of Genesis? How does it end? Egypt. Yeah, they're in, yeah, they're in Egypt. Yeah, when they have to leave, they promise to take Joseph's bones with them, which they do in Exodus. Um, so how does Exodus start? Talk us through what happens in Exodus. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's good. That's good. Tell me what you know about the plagues in Egypt. There's ten. <laughs> nice. That's good. What else? Yeah. Yeah. It was like God showing, I am more powerful than all your petty gods. I'm going to leave my people out of here. Yeah. What? The play. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to. It's hard to piece it together. <laughs> now, Kathy just indicated that there's like. It's it's still an indefinite amount of time. But it doesn't, it could be like a week or a few weeks, or there's some of them that have markers, but they're still vague. It's, yeah, it's kind of generally some amount of time. Yeah. Okay. Um, when the Israelite people leave, tell me about that. Passover. They took all the Israelites' okay. stuff. They were Egyptians. 
Oh, they yeah, took all the Egyptian, Egyptian stuff, yeah. So the Egyptians are like, get out of here, take our gold. What were you saying, Brendan? Passover. Pa- so what is that? Angel of death came down as the tenth plague and killed the, the firstborn, uh, unless you had the blood of the lamb. Yep. On the yep. Post. Yep. On post. That's right. Okay. Um, so then they leave Egypt. What's one of the first things that happens? They sing. Okay. Tell me about that. Moses and what, Miriam? Miriam sing uh-huh. the song to God. When? Yes, that's what I was looking for. So they leave Egypt, they cross through the Red Sea, (laughs) then they have their worship song, yeah, which is pretty cool. Uh, And then they pretty immediately start grumbling, complaining, whining, not happy. They They want food, they want meat, they're just never satisfied. They want water. God gives them water when Moses strikes a rock and water comes out of it. Um, Yeah, and then Moses goes up on where? Mount Sinai. And he's up there a long time, like 40 days and 40 nights. And during that time, what did the people do? Golden calf. Yeah, they build a golden calf, start worshiping it, and then what happens? Yeah. So good. So so good. Okay. Who who helped build the calf? Aaron. Crazy. Yeah. So crazy. Okay. Uh, and so then the most of the rest of Exodus is Moses saying, "Here's what God told me on the mountain," and then I went back up there and he I wrote it back all down, and that's kind of how Exodus through, right? Okay, tell me about Leviticus. What do you know? What do you remember? Huh? A lot of laws. It's essentially a month from Exodus to Numbers. Yeah, yeah. Leviticus is kind of more detail about what has already happened. It's just writing it down for us, but not much happens in the narrative, right? Priesthood instructions on uh, holiness and cleanliness and purity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, tell me about that. Uh, it starts and makes a point in the middle, and then it comes back around to say, like, now that we know this, like, here's another one. Here's how we do it. Yeah. yeah. So what's the center point, like the point of Leviticus, do you remember? Presence. Huh? Presence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the point is, like, being in God's presence. How it's structured in the chapters, what's the, the like, content oh, that the forms the center point? Yeah, the Day of Atonement, which is what allows you to be in God's presence, yeah. Um, which is so, so, so cool, right? Uh, I think it's cool. Uh, okay, what else? Anything else about Leviticus do you remember that you want to point out? There is a sundown thing. Uh huh. For why? Because they went in the uh, tent and did things incorrectly, uh-huh. which may have been out of disrespect for God. Mm-hmm. And they went in his presence. Or because they were drunk, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe drunk, yeah. Yeah. So. Yep. And the Bible says they offered unauthorized fire. Weird. But it's basically God saying, like, you came and offered a sacrifice that either I didn't ask for or you did it wrong. I'm not accepting that. And you didn't follow my rules. You're the first priests. You've got to do it right. We're not doing this anymore. Which is drastic, but I get it, kind of. Okay? Okay, that's basically, that's good. Summary of Leviticus. Now we get to Numbers, right? And we've said that Numbers covers that wilderness wandering period. So um, here's kind of an outline. Let's talk through these things a little bit. Um, these titles won't help you that much yet unless you know the content, but they'll be good frames to build content on. So first one, from Numbers 1-1 one, one through 10-10, ten, ten, chapter 10, verse 10, I would just call completing the covenant. Um, so that's going to be, the beginning of it is, like, here's all the people who came out, here's where they lived, here's the number of people in the tribes, and then it's going to um, talk a lot about, and we'll go through these chapters, it's going to talk a lot about all the people who work in the temple, different tribes of the Levites, here's your jobs, this is important for you to have these jobs. 
Um, and then just kind of rehashing, like, remember, God gave us all these things. God made promises to us. We're going to keep those things. So let's, like, officially confirm it before we really head out. Um, that's what happens in Numbers 1, 1 through 10, 10 or so. Uh, so they're still, during this section from Numbers 1 through 10, they're still at Mount Sinai. They haven't left yet. So this is, again, not much has happened. They've had that month at Mount Sinai where Leviticus is taking shape. And then the beginning of Numbers is like we're still there waiting for movement, but they're making sure they get the law settled before they move. Um, and then Numbers 10, 11 through 12, 16 or so. So that's the end of chapter 12. I would just call complaint and rebellion, which is a good way to characterize most of this. But um, complaint and rebellion happens a lot in that chapter 10 through 12 or so. And this is when they're traveling. So they're at Mount Sinai from chapters 1 through 10. Chapters 10 through 12, they're beginning to travel. Um, away from Mount Sinai, moving um, up. It's hard to, to exactly piece together the route they took, but your Bible may have a map in the back, which is helpful. Mine does. Um, I use these maps in the back of my Bible a lot. Do you guys ever look at them? Do you have maps in the back of your Bible? Mm-hmm. I hope they still do that. I look at these a lot. When I read, it, it helps me when I read names and you're starting, I don't know if you guys get this way. When I'm reading especially Old Testament narratives, but it happens sometimes in the New Testament, and you start seeing all these places, and it's just like, I don't know what you're talking about, and then I kind of start to zone out because I lose my bearings, you know what I mean? Then I'm like, hang on, hang on. And let me flip back here and find it. Let me just see where they are. It's like, oh, this is a real place. I can picture where that is. Oh, there's Egypt. There's Israel, which means that, like, Italy is up over here. You know what I mean? When you can picture it, then it's like, oh, this is a real thing. And it kind of grounds me again and helps me not lose track of the narrative. So my Bible has an um, Exodus wandering map. Do you see this? So it shows, this is a, it's, again, it's hard. Some people think that they went more this way, but I think this is probably a good guess. So they left Egypt, and they came down here, and here's Mount Sinai, maybe, in which we can, I didn't talk about that when we were in Egypt. I'll talk about that for a minute later. So they come down to Mount Sinai, then they start heading up this way, and this is when they get, they kind of camp out here, and Israel's up here, and God sends them up there, and they don't go, and then they come back and wander around in here for a while. Does that all make sense? helpful map that's very large for you to see. Okay. How large is that whole area? Uh, it's not huge. I mean, you could look up and see scale. I mean, like, if I... It's like... At this bottom point here, it's like 75 miles wide. Oh. So it's not huge. Yeah. Yeah, here. So did When they weren't allowed to enter the promised land, did they know? They, yeah, God told them, you can't come in. And you're going to stay in the desert till you die. Yeah, so it wasn't like they were like, we can't get anywhere, we're lost. It was like, we are condemned from entering that land where you have to stay here till we die. Yeah. Which would be crazy to live through. Yeah. I've read, and this is a long time ago, so this is all me asking for clarification, but I've read like the total distance that you walked in those 40 years should have actually been like 16 day travel. Yeah, I mean, this is yeah, this is not. I don't know the exact number, but this is not super far. Even if they did this longest path possible down south and then back up, it shouldn't take forever. But then certainly from here to the wandering around before they go up back in and take the promised land, that's tiny. I mean, it's enough that they could camp here and send spies in. Like it's not that far. So yeah, the the distance is not much. It's like they could almost see it, depending on where they were at different moments. But just knew God said no because you're unfaithful. Like that would be a crazy way to just waste away in the desert, wouldn't it? It'd be crazy. Um, so let's talk about Mount Sinai for a minute. Would that be okay? Interesting to you? 
So there's a couple different places where Mount Sinai could be. Um, there's a uh, there's a traditional site which shows here down at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula, um, the south part of Sinai here, and that place is called Jebel Musa, which means the mountain of Moses, and that's traditionally where they think it was. How exactly that tradition formed, that's, you know, piecing that stuff together over time is hard to say, but people for a long time have thought that that was it. Um, more recently, I don't know when this is, it's not new like five years ago, but more recently than the tradition, scholars have started to say that might have been too far south for them to go or this location might have been too hard for Moses. Like It would have taken him too long for these narratives to, to work based on that site. And I've been to that site and I get, it's like a long hike to get up there. So some, some scholars have been like, I don't know if people wouldn't have been able to hear and see what it says they did based on this geography. Does that make sense? So there's another place that's a little further north in the um, Sinai Peninsula. I think it's further north in the Sinai Peninsula. That is, um, they've found, it's like much more flat. So it's, a, it's not a huge mountain. There's like a, a huge plain and then just kind of a little mountain. You can basically see at the top of it, see a trail up it and it's flat on top. And so um, some archaeologists have said there's enough room here just in the desert plain that the million, two million, three million Israelites could have camped while Moses went up. They could have seen and heard the thunder easily, like it's all visible here. And Moses could have gone up and down, like the narrative says. And they've found lots of artifacts of ancient worship around that site, not necessarily of God, but of other gods. So the suggestion of those archaeologists is this is a place where people knew there was some sort of religious worship activity, and there's tons of space here. So the Israelites could have fit here, and then it would have been God again saying, I'm more powerful than all this other nonsense that goes on here. Let me reveal myself to you at this place. Does that make sense? So that's an interesting place too. It's less majestic, but it makes some sense geographically. What's interesting about Mount Sinai, or Jebel Musa, what's traditionally called Mount Sinai, is it, it feels like what you would want it to feel like, like when you imagine it or when you watch the Ten Commandments or whatever. It's just like this is mountainous, beautiful. Um, it's, there's not that like flat plain where a bunch of people could have camped. But I can get past that if God says, this is where I want you to be, then they're going to figure it out. You know what I mean? Um, and there still is a lot of space. It's just not flat. So it's like they could camp out anywhere. Um, but the mountain where they where the traditional site where Moses went up would have been again a long hike, which I kind of makes sense also in the narrative. The other thing of like he goes up and down a lot, I get it being shorter, but it being a large hike also makes sense to me because God is saying like I'm going to be here, and only you can get up here, and only some of you can get this far. Like there's kind of stations where you have to wander up the mountain a little bit. There's when um, you remember the scene when God says I'm going to pass by you with my glory, but you got to hide in the rock. There wouldn't really be a place for that on top of a plateau like that other site. But here, it's really like craggy and, you know, sharp juts up here and there. Like you can picture God saying, go hide over there and I'm going to come by. Like there's a lot of places like that that make sense. Um, and it says Moses was up there 40 days. So like I could see him like, this is a long hike. I'm going to stay here for a while. So both make sense. I think it's just interesting to picture either one. And, and I don't know which is the accurate place. But either way, it's helpful to have like real images of what it could have been like. Maybe I'll get at the break. Maybe I'll show you guys pictures since we're talking about it. I'm um, just pretty cool. I, yeah, the, the like traditional thing is you camp out at where Jebel Musa is, like at this campsite they have kind of, and then you hike it for sunrise. So you see sunrise from that mountain. It's pretty cool. 
but um, I sprained my ankle so bad. It was bad on the way. It was, yeah, it was bad, but I survived. Um, the other thing about this site, the traditional site from Mount Sinai, is there's a monastery there now called St. Catherine's Monastery where they found something called Sinaiticus. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Sounds like something with your sinuses. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Not really at all, but it does sound like that. So Sinaiticus comes from Sinai, but it, Sinaiticus is the, I think it is the largest, most complete um, manuscript of scripture that we have that they found and it's pre- I don't remember what it's dated to but it's one of the oldest also so it's like Sinaiticus is one of the like this is hugely helpful for us archaeologically tracing Bible back way 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 back and so they found it at that monastery that the people who had lived there just started copying it down and reproducing it and then it was discovered somewhere and now it's in a museum in London um, or not a museum in a library in London where you can see it on display. It's insane. So I can I tell you another story? Sorry, we're telling all my stories now. But this is, I think it's cool. So I got to see Sinaiticus in this library in London. In the, in the library, they have like this artifact room. And they've got a bunch of cool stuff in there. Like they have a letter that Michelangelo wrote to the Pope when he finished the Sistine Chapel. And like, hey, I hope that you're pleased. You know, it's like, oh, it's kind of cool. They have letters that Napoleon was writing and like got intercepted, which is part of how the army was able to stop him. Um, they have... Um, like napkin, the back of napkins are greeting cards that the Beatles sketched out like initial lyrics to songs on. So it's really cool stuff. Jane Austen's writing desk that she wrote Pride and Prejudice on. Pretty cool. But then they also have a bunch of biblical and religious stuff. So Sinaiticus is there. So when I saw it, I uh, it's in it is an unseal manuscript. I'm giving you guys way more than we, we're not talking about numbers at all. Okay, we'll get to numbers. <laughs> an unseal manuscript basically means not basically it means it's written in all caps with no spaces between words so it's really really hard to read and that's how a lot of things were written back then because they didn't have tons of space and so it's like we only have limited space this is really expensive takes forever to make make the most of your space so they're not spacing between words but it's like everybody knows the words you can just read it and figure it out which we in English it would be hard but you could do it you know like if you really had to you could figure it out in an ancient language it's hard for us but for people who spoke that language I understand what they're doing so Sinaiticus is unseal so it's all Greek, all caps, um, and they just have it displayed in this big glass case, and it's ancient, you know, so they have it open, but you can't touch it or anything, it's just a glass case. So I went to see it, and I was already, like, tearing up, just because it's like, this is amazing. And I think it's just, it's just the Old Testament, so Sinaiticus is just Old Testament, I believe, um, but pretty much the entire Old Testament, which is crazy to find something that intact. So I was, I was looking at it, trying to figure out, I'd known just enough Greek that I could kind of figure out where it was. And they just opened it to a random spot, you know. But I was figuring it out, and it's, it was open to Isaiah 61 I, you, that I kind of figured out. So, so Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 in Luke 4 mm-hmm. when he preaches at his hometown synagogue. So do you remember the story? He shows up at the synagogue, and they ask him to preach. And he opens the scroll, and it was Isaiah 61, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor and freedom for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, all that stuff. So I got to see one of the oldest manuscripts that exist of Scripture, the passage that Jesus read when he was in the synagogue. And I'm standing in this library crying. You know, the people are looking at Beatles stuff, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm reading this great thing. It's unbelievable. I tell you that not to be like, what a cool story for Ben, but like, this stuff is real. Like, that, that was written down physically not that long 
after that stuff happened. You know, like it was really pretty close to the time that those things really happened. Like that stuff's real. And it was really at that monastery where these people, these monks were living at the base of these mountains out in the wilderness to try to get away from the world where they could preserve scripture. And they wrote it down and wrote it down and wrote it down completely and preserved it. And it was in the desert where it's dry and not wet, so the paper's not rotting. It's like, those things are real, really happened, not that long after the fact, um, which is cool. Like, it's just, that stuff helps me experience this stuff when you read it. They're real places and real things that happen, so. You wanna talk about numbers now? Let's talk about numbers, okay. Uh, where were we? We were at the middle, complaint and rebellion. Okay, they're traveling. Numbers 13 through 19. Israel's unfaithfulness, Israel's unfaithfulness, which is like complaint and rebellion. You could say that covers a lot of it, um, but there's a couple major things we'll look at when we scan through the chapters of Israel's unfaithfulness, chapters 13 through 19 in Numbers. Um, chapter 13 is when they start exploring the promised land, so that's kind of the big turning point for them. Numbers 20 through 21, complaint and rebellion, again, this is another travel section, so um, they start at Mount Sinai, then they travel. They get to what's called the Wilderness of Paran, which again, you could look at your map. And that's when they send out spies up into Canaan. The spies come back. They decide not to go. So then they start traveling again once they're told, you can't enter. So they're like, okay, I guess we've got to figure out where to go. And during that time, they get grumpy and complain and rebel again. Uh, then the last section, numbers 22 to 36, I would just call God's faithfulness. So even in the midst of God punishing them and saying, you're going to die in the wilderness. I'm not letting you in. He still says, but I will let you in eventually. And he still says, I will take care of you in the midst of this. He still fights battles for them. He still gives them blessings. So like God has set, like a good father, has set a boundary of you cannot do this thing because you were disobedient, but I'm not leaving you, which is so much of God's character, I think, to them. To be able to say there's punishment, there's consequence. You sinned and I'm not leaving that alone. But I'm not leaving you. I still love you. I'm still with you. I'm still helping you. You just can't have the fulfillment of the good thing yet. you know. Um, which I think it's easy so often, and people do this all the time. Like God is so judgmental and awful in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he's so loving. Like I think it's pretty equal, frankly. But he says you can't enter the promised land, but I'm still going to protect you from your enemies. Like. That's a good, loving, kind God that's gracious, right? That's not an evil, vengeful tyrant that somehow changed in the New Testament. It's really not that different if you read the stories and, and follow the narrative. Um, so that's how Numbers ends. Um, let's see. Okay, I think that's all I want to say on that. Theological significance. Let's jump to that next section. Um, we've kind of hinted at this bit. Israel's rebellion and God's patience. Israel's rebellion and God's patience is all throughout Numbers. So they are consistently rebellious, consistently disobedient, consistently whiny, and God is consistently patient and faithful every time. Now, he, there are times, uh, like we saw, we saw some in Exodus, and we see some in Numbers. Moses references it in Deuteronomy again. There are times when God's like, I've had it with you. And Moses is like, wait, no, don't give up. Um, and God says, okay, then a little longer. Um, so God, there are times when he, at least Moses relates to us, that God is ready to like destroy the Israelites. And then Moses prays and God has compassion on them. So he definitely is, like gets upset and gets riled up, but he's not, again, just like a mindless, angry, vengeful tyrant. He's like, I've had it with these people because they're so disobedient. And Moses is like, if you do that, the Egyptians aren't gonna, are gonna say that you're not a good God. 
He's like, okay, a little bit longer. But each time he does that even, God is still proven right. He's like, these people will never be faithful. Moses is like, give us another chance. And God gives them another chance, and they're not faithful. So it's like, I'm being patient, but I told you this was going to happen. Does that make sense? So all those references, um, there's, there's more than this if you read the narratives, but those are references specifically where it's like a major story of rebellion or a major story of complaint um, that God or Moses has to deal with um, throughout Numbers. So there's some big ones there. And we'll talk about those each as we go through the book. Uh, another big theologically significant thing is the promised land um, that we get our first glimpse of in Numbers, but then the people don't enter it. Um, we've talked about that a little bit. We'll talk about it more um, later. So that's Numbers 13 to 14. And then another big theologically significant thing is Balaam. That's B-A-L-A-A-M, Balaam. And we'll look at those stories when we get there. Yeah, Haley? Oh, that means in following. So when it's like um, Numbers 11, 1, and then FF, that means 11, 1, and the next several verses tell the story. It's just so I didn't put like 1 through 18. It's just like 1 and read for a while, and you'll get the story. Yeah. Is there a difference between 1F and 2F? I think the difference is uh, either on that one, it might be a typo. But I think uh, technically the difference is if, if I was to say 20 verse 2, 1F, it would be like 2 verses 2 and 3. And if it's... FF, then it's several. I think that's technically right. I'm pretty sure that's a typo, though, <laughs> on this sheet. Um, so those references under Balaam, 2 Peter 2.15, Jude 1.11, Revelation 2.14, are references to Balaam in the New Testament, which when you read in the New Testament are confusing and don't make any sense. And when you know the Balaam story, they're still pretty confusing and don't make a lot of sense. But they make more sense a little bit. So um, it's a weird story. We'll get to Balaam when we flip through chapters. But just know that that's big New Testament. Does that make sense? Questions so far? Okay, you guys want to get through some chapters or are you about to you need to go to the bathroom? Let's roll a little bit. All right, cool. Um, so numbers um, one through four, we talked about this. The, it does start with census stuff. So like here's the numbers of each tribe and where they all lived and how they were arranged and all that stuff. Um, so it starts with that census stuff in chapters one through four. So not riveting stuff, but still important stuff. One thing I want to point out, you see in chapter three, it talks about the Levites. I don't know if you guys have the same kind of headings I do. Mine just says the Levites in chapter three, which is the tribe that was assigned to do what? Priests. Be priests. So then, if you look at chapter 4, mine says the Kohathites. Do you guys see something like that in your chapter 4? So the Kohathites are a family of Levites. And God says, you Kohathite Levites, you have a specific job in the tabernacle. Then he's going to go on further. The next one in the middle of chapter 4, the Gershonites. You see that? Again, a family of Levites who have a specific job in the tabernacle. The Merorites. Um, again, family of Levites who have a specific job in the temple. Um, which is interesting stuff to read. Some, it's like so detailed and so specific, which makes me, I, I want to pause a little bit and just apply on that. And then we'll talk about the Levites a few times in and out here. But the amount of time that God spends saying, you Levites, I have a specific job for you. And then even you people within the Levites, I have specific jobs for you that you're going to keep doing based on your family. But I wonder if it's, do you remember Bezalel and Aholiab? Do you remember who they are? What did they do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like the architects and designers of tabernacle stuff because they were good and skilled at that. I wonder if there's some similarity here where it's not just like, uh, you guys carry the stuff and you guys clean stuff. But if it's more like, I know that you as a family, I know that you, you know, Kohath, Kohath or whoever, 
the head of this family, I know that you've always cared about this and been good at it. You guys are really strong. You're in charge of carrying everything because it's heavy. Like, I wonder if God did a little bit of that. Like, I see who you are, and I'm going to assign you a task based on who you are. Now, their family is supposed to carry that out always. Um, so I'm sure there are some individuals in there who don't want the family business or whatever, and they made a movie about it. But um, do you guys know what I mean? Like, I don't think God is just randomly, because he's, he's shown us, he's paying attention to things. So him giving specific jobs to people, I think is God saying, I'm, for one, I know what needs to be done, and every detail matters. I think that's the nature of the God that we serve. He knows what needs to be done, and every detail matters. He cares if the poles get carried. He cares if the dugong hides are spread over the tent things. The dugongs are the sea cows, by the way. That's like my, my Bible says, like, take the hide of a sea cow and cover the tent with it. And there's a footnote, you know, for clarification, and it says that is a dugong. And I'm like, sea cow is clearer. <laughs> I don't think the footnote was helpful in this case. But he cares about all those details. He cares about how it's carried, where it's stored, who carries it. He cares about how it's cleaned. He cares about how it's arranged, what order it's unpacked. All those details are like, you could get caught up in God is so demanding. Or you could say, God pays attention to little things and is deeply honored when his people pay attention to little things and get details done and make sure that stuff like stuff matters. I think because God knows, for one, I'm God and you should honor me by doing what I ask. For another, I've designed a beautiful place here. So set it up right so that when people come in, they feel my presence. They'll, they'll know my presence is here. I want people to feel it. And so I think just remember that we serve a God who cares about that stuff. And every little thing you find yourself doing, maybe think of yourself like a Gershonite or a Kohathite or a Merorite. He's like, I have a little job to do. I'm going to get the coffee and set it up because when people feel welcome at church, they're more likely to want to be here. That matters to the heart of my God. Does how and when I pick up the coffee on an, in and of itself matter? Not really. Does it matter to the extent that it creates hospitality? Deeply, right? And you fill in the blank with your specific menial task. We've all got them. But I think God is saying, I assign that to you. And it's going to make a difference for people to experience my presence. Does that make sense? I think it's a big deal and cool how detailed he gets. Again, you can hang up on he's demanding, but I think the reality is he pays attention to detail because details matter. And um, I think we should honor that in him. Uh, okay, so chapter 5 through 9 or so is going to be, it's, it's going to be similar stuff to Leviticus. Um, if you just look at those, at your headings again, the purity of the camp, restitution for wrongs, that sounds like Leviticus stuff, right? Like, you want to come into the tabernacle, you got to be clean, especially you priests. you gotta, you got to be ready to not miss an opportunity to be in my presence. Chapter 6 is the Nazarites. Uh, who, what Nazarite do you know of in Scripture? Samson. Samson, yeah. Samson took a Nazarite vow, or his parents took it for him, so a mixture of that. Um, somebody else, maybe. So... Huh? John the Baptist, maybe. Uh, we don't know for sure, but it seems like maybe. And then also, um, maybe Paul took a Nazarite vow at some point in Acts. It's hard to say. I don't know if you remember the story when he's like been out on a missionary tour. It's when he's coming back to Jerusalem, even though he knows he's going to get arrested. And when he first gets there, he goes to the temple and shaves his head. Do you remember that part? That's really all it tells us. It's, it said he shaved his head because he took an oath. But if you read this, it's like, if you take this Nazarite vow, you're supposed to let your hair grow until it's done or until you're around a dead body. Then you have to shave your head and go to the temple. Like, oh, maybe Paul did this for a while. So the Nazarite vow is something you could do all the time and just say, I'm going to live my whole life this way, which it seems like was Samson's thing he was supposed to do and gave into Delilah and so didn't. 
or you can take it for a short period of time, like maybe Paul did, um, and just like this is a time set aside for increased devotion. Yeah. Was Samuel raised with a Nazarite vow? I tend, I think I remember that part of the story where Hannah's like, I am going to promise. Yeah, no wine will ever touch his lips, that kind of stuff. I think you may be right, but I don't know for sure. That would probably be in 1 Samuel 2 or 3, if it's there. If it's not specifically Nazarite, it's something close to it. Yeah. Um, So yeah, you could just take it for a short period of time. It doesn't have to be your whole life. Some people did it for their whole life. So you can read about that in chapter 6. It's not, it's basically like you're never going to drink wine. And by the way, don't have any grapes either. It's kind of, it's interesting the way it's written. Like never drink any wine and, well, just never have grapes. Like just be (laughs) safe. Um, You're never supposed to be around a dead body. You're never supposed to cut your hair. Um, Those are kind of the big rocks of this thing, Um, which is interesting stuff. So Samson did a lot of that stuff. So even, we'll talk about Samson when we get to Judges, but if Samson, like his downfall thing is when he let Delilah cut his hair, which broke this vow. But I'm pretty sure Samson got drunk a good bit, and I'm very sure Samson was around a lot of dead bodies because he made a lot of dead bodies. (laughs) And he, like, ate honey out of a lion's dead body. It's like he, he lived his whole life breaking this vow, but maintained the most externally visible piece of it, which is interesting. Like, a, the more I think about Samson and read Samson, it's like, he's not a good guy. He's a, kind of an awful... Because he chose an ungodly woman. <laughs> it's not all because of that. It's not all because of that. Yeah. No, he was bad. But uh, Samson is not a great character. Not a great character. So the Nazarite vows in chapter 6. The priestly blessing you see at the end of chapter 6. Um, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you. So that's what God says to Moses. Tell Aaron and his sons to pray this blessing over the Israelites. Um, and that's where that is. Um, and then chapters 7... Chapter 7 is a lot of like, everybody needs to make this offering. And here's a family. They made the offering. Here's another family. They made the offering. Kind of lists them all. Chapter 7. Um, chapter 8 is more setting up the tabernacle. Um, so it's, again, rehashed of Leviticus. But we're starting to put it in practice now because we're about to travel, right, in numbers. So the end of that section is like we're about to start traveling, chapter 11 or so, chapter 10 or so. So like really get ready because it's the first time we're going to have to pack this stuff up. So they're kind of really detailing it. Um, chapter 9 talks about celebrating the Passover. And then the end of chapter 9, God's presence shows up. And then, do you remember, all throughout this time, it said, like, God, when your presence moves, we're going to move. When your presence stays, we're going to stay. So his presence comes, and then they're getting ready to move with him, okay, at the end of chapter 9. Um, now we're in chapter 10. Um, so chapter, the beginning of chapter 10, they start to leave. You see in um, 10 verse 11 is when they head up. The cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, so they leave. And then in chapter 11, um, look at 11.1. The people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused, and fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was called Tevera, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. So... When you read this again, it's like, wow, they were mad, so God just started burning people up or burning up the camp. Like, yes, he acted drastically. Also, he parted the Red Sea and gave them the law and gave them the stuff and spent all this time with them. And as soon as they take a step, they start whining. And he's like, guys, I don't want, I'm not going to do this with you if you don't want it. So like, I understand his frustration. Then the next section um, from verse 4 on, 
they start complaining because they want meat, which is a story we've heard before. Remember, they did this already. We want food. We need food. And God provides for them. Um, here, they're like, we wish we had meat. We had so much meat in Egypt. Everything was so great back when we were slaves and oppressed and life was awful. Things were great. And so they're complaining, and God's like, all right, you want meat? I'll give you meat. And, um, he, and God says to Moses, go tell the people I'll send them meat. And Moses is like, how are we going to do that? There's so many people. And God's like, I can do it. So then uh, quail blow in, like from a crop where the sea was. And it says they pile up to like three feet deep in like a day's walk around. So like God's like, you want meat? Here's tons of meat. And then they start eating it, and people are all so excited. And by the time they start eating it, like while they're eating it, they all get sick. <laughs> it's like, gosh. Again, weird from God, but he's like, I can do this stuff. You're going to complain every time you turn around. Will you just trust it? I wonder if they just would have been faithful and obedient. If God is like, hey, I have food for you. I'll provide for you. I have good things for you. When they complain, 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 he's like, it makes me not want to help you. Um, Which is, I mean, just think about that in your life. Like if you're really generous with somebody and they're not grateful, do you want to be generous to them again? No, I don't. When I do something for my daughters, when I give somebody a gift, when I, it's something like that, and they're just like, oh, cool, you know, it would have been neat if, you know, like, well, why do I even, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. And so I think that's God is like, I gave you, I, I produced miraculous food for you that shows up every morning. And all you do is complain that you wish you were slaves again. Choke on this quail. You know, like, which is weird to think about, but I also kind of like in, in a father God, not just being like, I give you whatever you want, you poor people. He said, no, I'm a father. This is inappropriate. You need to learn to stop whining. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, and I kind of like that about his character. It's weird in some ways, but I like that he really is like a father. You know, I think that's valuable and good in the character of God. Um, maybe it's weird. I think it's good too. Um, Miriam and Aaron in chapter 12 so even them, Moses' brother and sister, come up to Moses and start complaining. Um, and uh, look at verse 3 of chapter 12. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. But who wrote this book? Moses. So weird. Maybe someone else added it in later. Or maybe Moses is like, hey, I'm telling you, I'm a humble guy. I don't know why they're so mad. Yeah, Troy. Why that whole, and at least in mind, that whole entire verse is in parentheses. Yeah, I think it's because it re- I don't know why they would have done that linguistically. Yeah. Like if there's a way in Hebrew that it shows parentheses. But I think it just feels that way. It's like they're telling the narrative, and then after that verse, they keep telling the narrative. It's kind of like an aside. Like, oh, by the way, you should know. This will help you understand. Now we're back, you know. Um, So then what happens is God basically tests them, and Miriam gets leprosy. And then they pray, and like, no, please don't kill her with leprosy. So he takes it away. But it's like you got to stop complaining about Moses. He's the leader. Let him be the leader, which is a great lesson for us. Um, that was was Moses a perfect leader? Not at all, right? He was angry. Um, maybe sometimes he was kind of passive or like uh, afraid of confrontation. I wonder. And some of those interactions he has with God where God is fed up and Moses is like, no, 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 it's going to be okay. Don't hurt. Don't be mad. I don't know. Sometimes it seems like he's kind of a like, I'm going to keep the peace at all costs kind of leader, maybe. Just reading into the story a little bit, but maybe. He's definitely angry, definitely brash. He's not perfect. He's good not perfect. They complain against him. Some of their accusations unfounded. Some of them, they may have good reasons, but God says, this is my leader. Stop complaining. And I think sometimes we need that reminder. Could you always have a different idea of a way to do things that might be good? Yeah, you might always have good ideas. Sometimes You don't. Not every idea of yours is good. You may always be able to come up with a good one. 
that would help a leader or challenge a leader or at least just be different preference. But I think sometimes God is like, I don't care how good your idea is. They're the leader. You need to let them lead. And you've got to submit or I'll give you leprosy. <laughs> he doesn't always do that. But that's what he does to Miriam. Now he takes it away. But I think that's his way of saying like, you have seen all of this firsthand, Miriam. Stop complaining. And I think that's so much of what he would say to us sometimes. I know in my heart, I'm sure in yours, that you could look at leaders. And again, like be a critical thinker, be an observer, develop your own passions, develop your own convictions. Don't just shut off your mind and mindlessly numb out to be a yes person to a leader. But I do think God is saying, do you trust that I'm in charge of the church? If so, can you trust that I'm sovereign enough to have leaders in place that I want? If so, can you submit to them or are you going to complain and be arrogant all the time? I think that's God's heart. Now again, there's a you got to prayerfully discern where is there a place for challenge? Where is there a place for like this is inappropriate, we need to speak up? Of course there's a place, a time and place for that stuff. But a lot of times if we really prayerfully discern it, our complaints, our frustrations are like, hey, I'm not in charge. And maybe someday when I'm in charge, I can do that. Right now I'm not in charge. I'm going to do my job. Um, and I think we see that from Miriam and Aaron. Okay, um, chapter 13 is when they're, um, they send spies into Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. Uh, who were the two good ones? Joshua and Caleb. Um, one thing to point out, this isn't a huge deal. Your versions may not even have it this way, um, but I think it's worth pointing out. Uh, let me find it. Where is it? Um, verse 8, uh, chapter 13, verse 8. It's listing out who all goes. It says, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, son of Nun. Do you guys see that? What does yours say? It says that. Yeah, so Joshua. That's Joshua. I, it's, it's happened to me several times, and I like teach this several times. But I'll read through and I'm like, where's Joshua? I thought Joshua was one. It's like, oh no, Hosea. That's just a different version of the same name. But son of none is uh, Joshua. So for whatever that's worth, if that triggers your mind, it always throws me off. So uh, that's where Joshua is. So the spies go into Canaan. Um, I think we've talked about this before when we were doing the timeline thing. It's amazing. Tons of fruit. There's giants, but no big deal. It's a, an amazing land. The people come back and 10 of them say, we can't do it. Joshua and Caleb say, no problem. Let's go tomorrow. And then all the people side with the 10. And so they, they don't want to go. They try to talk them into it. Joshua and Caleb do, but they don't receive it. And um, so those 10 kind of win over the crowd, and they don't end up going. Um, and so then they are told, okay, fine, then. You're going to wander in the desert till you all die because you're unfaithful. Uh, if you look at the end of chapter 13, verse 33, and this is the 10 people talking. It says, we saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. For one, that just shows that like they're like, we're just tiny compared to these people. But there's our Nephilim friends again that also show up in Genesis 6. You remember we talked about that a little bit. Um, so this is another place they show up. Um, what do I want to show next? Um, so 14 verse 20. Um, look at this. Again, this is the, the gracious, like the consistent kind of nature of God. He's not just judgmental, angry, tyrant guy. This is 14 verse 20 when um, the people say they're not going to go. Actually, let's go up earlier because I want to read that. God says like he's upset. And then Moses, starting in verse 13, he says the Egyptians are going to hear about it if you just destroy them and don't ever bring them into the promised land. The Egyptians are going to be like, that God wasn't as powerful as he said. He doesn't actually love those people. Maybe he's not who he said he was. 
Then look at verse 17. This is still Moses. He says, Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you've pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who, who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Um, so that's the culmination of that. But do you see Moses saying, for one, you said you're gracious, compassionate, forgiving. Are you going to be consistent with your character? And God says, yes, I forgive them. Which doesn't sound like the stereotype of the Old Testament God we hear talked about all the time, right? I forgave them for their sin because that's what I do. You have a question? Yeah. Um, so is it just Caleb and Joshua who survive in this? Uh, the, eventually. They're, they're the only two at this time who get to go into the promised land. Yeah. Yes. Moses gets right up to it. So Moses stays there and leads him to right the end. Yeah. So you're just saying they're like, he, like God's upset just because, not just because, because they are unfaithful to do what he asked them to do, which is enter into this land. But they're like, I don't know if this is the right land. Yeah, well, the, their biggest thing is, we don't think we can do it. Like, we're not strong enough to fight these people. Yeah. And God says, I told you to go take it and that I would fight for you. And they say, no, they're too big. And so God's like, do you not know who I am? Did, have you forgotten that I split a sea in two? Have you forgotten that I destroyed the whole Israel, the Egyptian army? So I, th- I think God takes it as not just like, you're scared or you're not sure. It's more like, them not going into the promised land is them saying we don't trust you we don't think you are who you said you are and we've forgotten how powerful you've been for us does that make sense does that answer what you're getting at um so again it's like wow god's kind of mean but i don't i understand like why would he not have consequences for this um but i just love that it shows those little like he's forgiving he forgives sin that's who he is even back here um which is the i think big deal same He's the same character um, throughout the story. Is this making sense? Okay. Um, Korah's rebellion is in chapter 16. Um, by the way, chapter 15, I skipped over that a little bit. Chapter 15 talks about God saying, when you get to the land, you're going to have to make some extra offerings because, like, just to show that you're going to listen to me, you're obedient, and to make up for this period of time when you've been unfaithful, I want you to prove it to me that you're ready for this blessing by obeying what I have for you when you finally get there. So that's what chapter 15 is about. Um, Chapter 16, a guy named Korah, um, who is a Levite, comes to Moses and is tired of his leadership. Uh, I don't know exactly, you don't know exactly why. He just says, you've gone too far. So who knows what that means. Um, But he's upset with Moses' leadership and a bunch of his people with him. And so Moses just says, like, okay, we'll let God decide. And if I've done a bad job, then he can put an end to me. And if you're wrong for rebelling against God's leader, he can deal with that. And so Moses says, like, if, um, I think he spends a night praying about it. And then the next day, 
he says to all the people of Israel, if all of these people who've rebelled against me, he tells them all, come gather together and bring your censers, which is like what they kept incense in, which is kind of the like, it smells like the presence of God. So I bring that with you so that we know God is here. And if he honors you, then you're ready to worship him. And if not, then maybe he'll kill me. So bring those. All these people are ready. They're like ready to worship and be proven right. And Moses says, if these people all die a natural death, then you know that they were right and I was wrong. But if these people die an unnatural death, like if God kills them, then you'll know that God is displeased with this kind of behavior. And as Moses is talking, the earth splits open <laughs> right underneath them. They fall through the crevice and die. And Moses is like, okay, stop complaining. Like, crazy. But that's, that's Korah's rebellion. And that, that is referenced, I want to say it's somewhere in the New Testament, but it's referenced a couple times in the Old Testament. Um, where it just it talks about Korah's rebellion, the sins of Korah, and that's what that means. They're like grumbling, we don't trust God or his leader, we want to be in charge kind of thing, uh, and it God's not, about, not having um, that. It talks about the splitting of the earth in Revelation 12 as well, about how like the enemy, or like Satan, went after uh, the mother of the child, and it says God split the earth. Hmm. And his like his attacks fell through. I don't remember that part in chapter twelve. That's cool. Revelation twelve is great. It's good. Is Korah one person? Yes. Yeah, he's kind of the leader of the rabble. Yeah, so some of them are named, and then sometimes it's like in some other clans with them. So he was just kind of the head, the head guy who led the uh, rebellion. Uh, Korah's rebellion is mentioned in Jude. Yeah, I put that on your sheet, even though I forgot. Uh, okay, number, let's see. Chapter 18 talks about more duties of priests. There's a lot of time given to that, um, which, again, I would you could get hung up on God's obnoxious detail, or you could say how good of God to be so clear with what he wants, because clearly when things aren't done right, he's upset. But he has left nothing to question. You know, people aren't going to be surprised by what he's looking for. Um I want to point out now um, chapter 19 is more ritual stuff chapter 20 is when um, Moses is disobedient and then he is not allowed to enter the promised land so God says go speak to this rock and give them water because the people want water and then Moses goes up to the rock and says do you need us to get water for you and then he smacks the rock twice it's like God said, I'm going to give water. You speak to it. Moses says, we'll get water for you my way. And so that it's that thing, which again seems small, but it's like how clear has God been? And how humble is Moses supposed to be? That in all this time, God has fought for Moses' leadership. God has put down rebellions against Moses' leadership. God has said, you're my guy. But then when Moses stands up publicly and says, I'm going to do it my way, and I have a part to play in all this. When he arrogantly claims the leadership stage, God will have none of it. When Moses humbly steps into the leadership, God fights for him. I think that's a huge deal for us as church leaders to think about all the time. When we humbly accept the position God has called us to, then I think God will honor that. God will fight for that. Won't always be perfect. Won't always be easy. But I think God is pleased with humble leaders saying, I'm here because God lets me be here, and I'm going to do that to the best of my ability. And I think when people stand up and say, this is my stage, this is my church, this is my ministry, this is my philosophy, this is my way of doing it, then God is like, I think I'm done with you. 
that he acts that quickly with Moses. He lets Moses continue leading, but he says, you can't have the great blessing anymore. You can't have the promised land anymore. I'm not going to have the leader of my people think that it's all about him. You guys sit down. Like that's a, again, feels drastic, but when you really think through what's happening and the history that Moses of God have been through, when God is like, Moses, I talked to you face to face. I've never done that with anybody else since the garden. I talked to you face to face, tell you exactly what to do. People were complaining. You asked me for advice. I told you, talk to the rock. I'll do it. You didn't do it. I said, and you claimed authority for yourself. We're through. I just think the, the way God so quickly disciplines arrogance and leadership is a lesson we got to lock away. Uh, I think it's a big, big, big deal. And never want that to be true uh, of us, of me. Uh, so the bronze snake is in chapter 21. The, the rest of chapter 20, by the way, is um, Moses saying, we're going to pass through this area in Edom. And so he writes to the leader of Edom and says, can we just come through? And the guy says, no, we're going to fight you. And so God says, okay, I'll take care of it. And so God helps him win the battle. So again, look at God's faithfulness. Even after Moses himself is so disrespectful, so disobedient, God says, but you're my people. I'm not leaving you. I'll fight this battle for you. Isn't that crazy? It's like it's crazy if you really put on the lens of God's patience that he, and I think God would have every reasonable right to say, I told you none of you could get into the promised land. You're going to die anyway. Even your leader is kind of an arrogant jerk. Yeah, good luck. Go into battle. Let's see what happens. That'll help me weed you out. Like, I, I wouldn't even totally blame God for that, just being hands-off in this situation, right? But he says, I'll help you. Crazy. It's crazy. God's patient. Um, chapter 21, starting in verse 4, is the bronze snake story. Do you have something, Nick? I was just going to ask about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a weird story. It's like, again, they're complaining, so it says God sent poisonous snakes among them to kill them like gosh and I wonder we've talked about this kind of thing before I wonder how much of that is Moses saying like I talked to God and he told me he created these snakes and brought them to the desert to kill everybody or if it's like people are dying where do these snakes come from and and Moses is like wait you guys are complaining again I bet this is what it is I don't know which way it happened either way the result is the same but then God's solution is to tell Moses carve a snake out of bronze put it up on a pole when people get bit they can look at it they'll be healed crazy that's like witch doctor crazy stuff but for whatever reason god said to do it that way i don't know the full reason i know that in john 3 um it refers back to this story and it says just like moses put something up on a pole and when you look to it you could be saved jesus says i'm going to be lifted up onto a pole and when you come to me you can be saved like that's a crazy kind of connection to me one of those connections where i'm like are you sure, John, that that's like an appropriate interpretation of that text? You know, if I want to question his hermeneutics. But he had the Spirit, you know, inspire him to write it, so I'll believe it. But that's ultimately how the New Testament applies this story. Maybe God put this story in here just so he could make that connection. I don't know. Or maybe this is just one of God's... Maybe it's almost even a test of obedience, right? That God's saying, I know this sounds crazy. Are you going to do what I say, Moses? Because remember last time I told you what to do? And you were a jerk. This time I'm telling you to put a snake on a pole. Are you going to do it? And if you do it, it'll work. Like I, I wonder, that's probably at least a piece of it, right? Of God just saying, I have all the solutions. You can do what I say or not. I don't care if people think you're crazy. I bet people are like, Moses, you're such an idiot. And he's like, I'm not disobeying God again. And I want to get to that place too, right? As a leader where it's like, this may sound crazy. It may sound crazy to go up to that person and ask to pray for them. It may, which is so small compared to a bronze snake thing. But I think the principle is there. Like God tells you to do it, 
Are you going to say I'm embarrassed because that doesn't make sense? Or are you going to say God is in charge, I do what he says, and let's just see what he does? And he heals people from snake bites with crazy stuff. So if he says to do it, I'm going to do it. Um, but I, I think that turnaround from Moses here is maybe part of the story of just saying he learned his lesson, you know, pretty quick. Strange story, though. Strange story. So why do you think, well, it's one, it's interesting that it's like they're complaining about food yeah. and, then, and then the serpent. And then, but why do you think it was a serpent? Because, I, I don't know, in my kind, you know, when we read it, it's like, oh, I'm like Genesis 3, mm. right? That's immediately what like I Snakes think are bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, why is it then that we're looking towards a snake when it's like that's the evil thing? I don't know. I mean, like I said, it could just be God saying, like, this doesn't make any sense. Just do it. This is how I'm choosing to do it. Could be. I, I, I mean, my thought process was like, well, it's not just a snake. It's the one that God said this is. It's like if a man were to be crucified, it wouldn't, we wouldn't have been cleansed of sin. It was that Jesus himself came to the flesh incarnate. But that's my thought process was because God said so. That's what made that way work. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I, I wonder, too, if um, if it's like, if it's another nod to God's power that, like, I created this thing. So, the like, the fact that the snake could be the symbol that saves people seems, like, weird and out of line. But God is like, I made the snakes. I made the solution. Like, I'm in charge. of The snake isn't something you need to be scared of. It's the God who made it that you need to fear. So I can control that too. Like I, that may be it a little bit. It is strange. There's no way around it being a strange story. But those are some of the things I think that make it click a little bit. Do we know how old Moses was at this point in time? Uh, there may be a way to figure it out, but I don't know. It may say how old he was when he died. I think it does. He was 120 when he died. And this is close to that time, at least. So he, I would say he's definitely over 100, but at bare minimum, 80. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, the Balaam story is in chapters 22 through 24. So let me summarize it for you because that's a lot of content. So um, basically, Balaam is some foreign prophet, divination, witch doctor guy. Um, and the... The king, uh, Bear, Balak, son of Zippor, who is a Moabite king, sees the Israelite army. Again, we're talking maybe millions of people. So, or it's not an army. It's the nation, but all the men are the army. That's just kind of how it functions. So he sees them all like in his territory, and he's like, oh, no, these are the people that the Egyptians all lost to. What are we going to do? Israel is not even threatening to fight. They would rather just pass through unharmed. But this guy's like, I need to curse them. What's going to happen? They could destroy us. And so he calls this guy he knows is a prophet, Balaam, and says, hey, I'll pay you whatever, whatever you charge to do your thing. Will you just come speak a curse over these people? And so he like, prays about it, which is strange because he's not, he's not like a follower of Yahweh. But he's somehow, remember we talked about this, like call your John Mark Comer book stuff in. There is a real spiritual realm. It's not just that there is God and everything else is people's imagination. There's a real spiritual realm that this guy has some sort of power into for some reason, which is not good. So he, he's offered this reward to curse the people of Israel. And so to like just come where they are and curse them. He prays about it, and God tells him, don't go curse them. And so he tells the guys, hey, I can't go. Their God said I can't curse them. 
So they go back to their king, and he's like basically give him more and talk him into it. So they go back, and then God says, "You can go, um, you can go with them, but you can only say what I tell you to say." So basically, I'm not going to tell you to curse them, but you're just gonna, only going to say what I'm going to say. So he gets up the next morning. This is where it gets crazy. He gets up and goes with them, and um, while he's on his way, or he go, I don't know if he's with them or what, but while he's on his way, his donkey stops moving, and he gets really, really mad at the donkey. He starts beating it. And then um, it has, happens a few times. And then the donkey talks back to him. He's like, why are you beating me? I've always been a good donkey. And he's like, what? And then the donkey says, I see the angel of the Lord in the way. That's why I stopped. He's going to kill us if we keep going. And so then he like prays and has this conversation with God. And God says, yeah, I would have killed you if your donkey hadn't stopped. You should be nice to your donkey. You sh- why are you doing this? And he's, which is confusing to me. So like, didn't God tell him to go as long as he was only going to say what God said he was going to say? But, and he's going and he gets punished for that. The only thing I can think of, the story doesn't connect these dots explicitly. It just seems strange. What I think happens is Balaam hears, oh, I have permission to go. Cool. I'm going to go get my reward and go do whatever. I'm glad I'm not like spiritually prohibited from doing this thing because I'm going to get a bunch of money to do what this king wants me to do. So I think he heard the right thing from God. Yes, go with them. But I bet his heart was off and just saying, I'm going to get my reward. And I'm going to say whatever he wants me to say and then come back home. And God is like, no, I told you that you can say what I tell you to say. And maybe God knows that's not what he's planning to do. Does that make sense? Again, no way around it being a weird story, but I think that's what happens. So he goes, but God says, you can only go if you say what I tell you to say and nothing else. And he's like, fine, because he's scared because his donkey just talked to him. So he keeps going. And then the king brings him up in this place, like, look at all these people, curse them. And he's like, I'm only going to say what God tells me to say. And so he speaks blessing over them. And that happens three times. And each time the king gets more mad. And the king's like, can't I give you whatever wealth you want? He's like, you can give me whatever you want. I'm only going to say what God told me to say because he made my donkey talk to me, right? So he's like scared into obedience. So Balaam, this like crazy non-godly prophet who is kind of a like I'll do spiritual work for hire is so spoken to and impacted by God showing up to him that he just speaks blessing over the people of Israel, even when the foreign king is trying to get him not to. And so the foreign king finally just gets fit up with them and they kind of part ways. But at the end of that, um, it's in chapter 24, um, Balaam's fourth oracle, chapter 24, 15 and following. There's a prophecy. Um, so he says in verse 17, he's basically talking about like these people aren't going to be blotted out from the earth. They're going to be fine. Starting verse 17, Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. What's a scepter? It's like what a king holds, yeah. Um, He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will go strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. So this could be as simple as... Israel is eventually going to be established as a nation and they're going to become a fearsome military force, which is true. Like maybe this is David, right? Like David conquered all these people when he's kind of running. Um, And then once he becomes king, this could also point even further to that. Like a scepter is going to come from this family. A king is going to come from this family far off. It'll be like a star that shines. What does that sound like, by the way? A star that shines when a king comes, right? So there's, I think this is pointing to David. I think it's pointing further. It's a, it's a vague prophecy of basically saying these people aren't going to be destroyed right now. They're going to continue growing in power. I think is specifically what he's saying. The language he's using even points further so that when we have hindsight, we're like, whoa. 
even this foreign prophet who may or may not even believe in God, except maybe he does after the donkey thing, but he, if he's able to just truly speak what God is saying, God is already planting seeds of, these are my people, they will be blessed by me, they will be a priesthood that is an established nation that all nations have to revere, there will be a ruler here that draws the attention of all people on earth. That's it. The seeds of that are being planted, even by this guy here. It's kind of a crazy turn. Yeah, Sadie. Do you think, like, going along with what we've learned and God has a name, that maybe he chose Balaam to do this because he has stronger connections to the spiritual realm, almost like a warning to tie to the other gods or demons or whatever it is of being like, no, even your people can't come in your mind? Yeah, maybe. And so, like, yes, this is a blessing for the people, but since it doesn't really... I mean, it's still from God, yeah. it's from him, but maybe it's more of a warning. Yeah, I, th- I think maybe um, because, yeah, the other spiritual forces would be like, we are guys doing his bidding, that's crazy, and this guy maybe changed, like, how do the people of Israel know this story? Like, maybe as they keep moving on, Balaam is like, I've got to learn more about who you people are. You know, maybe that happens, and that's how they know the story. Um, but yeah, it's definitely kind of a, the deepest spiritual force that the people had access to gets turned because God made a donkey talk. Mm-hmm. How powerful is that God? You know, yeah, I think it's definitely a piece of it. Um, chapter 25, um, Israel is basically staying in that area because they're not cursed but blessed. And so uh, some of the Israelite men start sleeping with Moabite women which they're not supposed to do. And so one guy named Phineas gets really upset. Some of the people are real upset about it. A lot of the guys, uh, or this one guy, Phineas, gets real upset about it. And he sees, after the Israelites have been told, you need to stop doing this, he sees a guy take a Moabite woman into his house. And so Phineas takes a spear and goes in there after them and spears both of them. And it says he sends it through the guy and through the woman. So it's like, probably caught him in the act, maybe. And just like, none of this, you're dead. And, and the, the Phineas is like celebrated for like, that's what we're talking about. That's like, take this stuff seriously, which again is weird. Like transport yourself to an ancient time. I wouldn't deal with it that way. <laughs> but what's being emphasized here is God saying, I don't know how much more clear I can be. I have given you, every, I, you're living in Moab safely because of me. I don't know how much more clear I can be. Somebody take this seriously. And so Phineas does and kind of becomes a hero. Um, and so when you, um, when you hear the word zeal, well, um, some of you guys have read this in the Paul biography book already. We'll read the Paul book next year for you first years. But he talks a lot about this story, N.T. Wright does, as kind of an example for um, why Paul and, or Saul and people like him would have been so zealous even for persecuting Christians. Because if they saw them as like, you are giving into false religion. You are coupling yourselves with something that's not true. You are stepping outside of what God has clearly asked of us. We're going to kill you because we don't want to get bit by poisonous snakes again, etc. Right? So, like, they would have looked back to Phineas as, like, that's our guy. That's our rally cry. We're being like that. He was a hero. Does that make sense? So, it's an interesting story. Uh, somebody have a question? Sorry. What that was is huh? What is zealous? Zealous is basically, like, um, I really, really believe in this so much that I'm willing to speak up for it, fight for it. Like, I care about this. I have zeal about it. So, like, a, a low level of this would be, like, I have some zealousness for Michigan football. It's a low level of it because I wouldn't die for Michigan football. 
but zeal is basically that like I care about this you can see it I'm not shy about it I'll tell you about it I wear it on my shirt like I'm all about this Yeah, it's like, I don't care what you think, I'm celebrating, I'm worshiping. Yeah, I'm taking care of it, yeah. That's what I did when the Rams won the Super Bowl. What that did? And we're back. So in chapter chapter 27, this is another glimpse into God's goodness. Um, This guy named Zelophehad um, had died and didn't have a male heir. And so his daughters come to, to the leaders and say, like, hey, there's no male heir. But the males are the ones who inherit land. So when we get to the promised land, can we have any land? Because we're just going to be homeless. And they're like, absolutely, you should have land. And so they make allowance for that. Um, and later on at the end of Numbers, they come back to it. And like once they got into the land, or in, it's in Numbers of Deuteronomy, they made sure that Zelophehad's daughters got their places, which is pretty cool. You could still read it and piece it out and be like, this still is misogynistic. But again, transport yourself to an ancient time. These daughters come in saying the law comes through men. And immediately God is like, absolutely make it. Like, of course, you're taken care of. Which would have been foreign in most ancient cultures, how quickly he does that. Um, so I think it's a cool thing. At the end of chapter 27, uh, it talks about Joshua taking Moses' place of leadership. Like, that that's the plan. So they've got a succession plan in place. And then um, chapters 28, 29, you can just scan through those headings. This is, again, a lot of rehashing of Exodus stuff, right? Laws, feasts, that kind of thing. Um, chapter 30, the same. Um, chapter 31 um, is when God says, like, I'm going to fight this battle for you. Like, we're going to get rid of these people and drive them out, which I always told you to do. Um, and then chapter 32 are you following me so far kind of seeing how this flows the end of this kind of goes does a lot of rehashing and then a lot of like here's a bunch of foreign people and how we divided up our conquering of them um chapter 32 um the reubenites and gadites their inheritance of land was on the other side of the jordan like before they cross in so they're like hey we're here can we just stay here and uh, but the leaders say no you come fight with us like you're part of us come fight with us because we got to clear out this land but yes this is your land you can have it back your wives and kids can stay here, but would you please come with us to fight? We need your help. And so they do. And then at the end of Joshua, I think those tribes, it talks about them going back. Um, so it's like they get, they've accomplished their purpose, they fought with unity, and then they go back. Um, chapter 33 retells the travel narrative with a bunch of those places that are hard to pronounce and hard to remember. You can look at your map, it's kind of helpful. Chapter 34 talks about the geography, like here's where we are and where different tribes are going to settle. Um, chapter 35 makes specific allotment for the Levites to have places to live because they're not given a specific territory. They're supposed to be spread out, different places. So it talks about that. It talks about cities of refuge. You guys familiar with this concept? City of refuge was set up, like there were certain ones of them, where if you accidentally killed somebody, you could run to a city of refuge to prevent basically justice being taken on you because the law allowed for if you commit murder then that person needs to die so they're like if you if it was an accident and you don't think you're guilty go to a city of refuge and no one is allowed to do anything to you while you're there and then there's a fair trial where your case is heard and if it really is proven that you didn't do it on purpose 
then you're okay. But they're supposed to stay there until the high priest dies. So it's like, stay here for a while, you'll be safe till everybody's anger calms down, I think is kind of the idea. Does that make sense? Yeah, Jackson? Is that kind of like where the idea of jurisdiction came from, maybe? Uh, like I don't know if that's where it came from. What? If you do something bad, you go down to Mexico type stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's where it came from, but it, there's some overlap in the principle. Yeah, of like you can't you can't be convicted here for something you did there. Yeah, I don't know if that's where it came from, but similarity. Uh, chapter thirty six talks about Zelophehad's daughters again, so that's kind of full circle. Um, and then look at chapter thirty six, verse thirteen. This is how it ends. These are the commands and regulations the Lord gave through Moses to the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. So basically, Numbers ends right there. They're right here looking at Jericho. Joshua picks up at that same place geographically. Deuteronomy is it's like Leviticus. Remember how you have the Exodus narrative and the Leviticus and then the Numbers narrative. Uh, Deuteronomy is going to function like that, where it's like you have the Numbers narrative stuff, and then Moses is going to kind of talk for a long time in Deuteronomy to rehash it. Then he dies. Then the narrative picks up again in Joshua. Does that make sense, that flow? So Joshua picks up right after this. Basically. There, there's probably some time that passes. I don't know the exact number. It's not like the next moment. But it's, it's the same kind of thing. It's like we're camped out here. We're going to wait till we're ready. Moses has some final words first. And then we're going to move on from there. All right? You didn't, uh, can you talk about Eleazar? Because I feel like he's like in this whole chapter. He, yeah, yeah. So he's one of Aaron's sons. So remember when Aaron's sons died because of the unauthorized fire? His next two sons become the priests. Um, so it's the two sons that die are Hophni and Phinehas, I think, and then it's Eleazar and uh, I forget the other guy's name, but he's mentioned some. But I think Eleazar's the older one. Pretty sure that's right. But I for I mean that would have been early in the book. Let's see if we can find it. Uh, so Nadab and Abihu, sorry, Hophni and Phinehas are a different story. Nadab, are Eli's sons. Nadab and Abihu are Aaron's firstborn sons. His next ones are Eleazar and Ithamar. So they become the two priests under Aaron. Yeah. That's in, I see that in Numbers 3, 2. If you're curious. Okay. Other questions about Numbers, thoughts, before we break? All righty, let's take a break.